0: Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter, the 21st to the 28th verse. There's a few pieces of this gospel which are certainly important for us in some way to uh, reflect upon and to come to understand, maybe get a deeper understanding of the public ministry of Jesus and the role that Jesus plays as Messiah within his own community and therefore within the community, however, of our own community as well. So it begins with Jesus and his followers went as far as Capernaum. And as soon as the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. And his teaching made a deep impression on them because unlike the scribes, he taught them with authority. This sounds like so, yeah, Jesus teaches with authority, but but there's something very, very important here. First of all, the debate of the scribes um, is is something that uh, the rabbinic debates of the first and second centuries, where they pick a point and then they go and they try and cite all of their sources for that and to take particular positions. And in the taking of the uh, particular positions, they they come into kind of endless arguing about it. And it becomes more kind of like, uh, well there's this, but then there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this, this, and, and there's very little resolution to it. All of it trying to figure out how to more exactly observe the law. The idea of authority in the Old Testament is always only God's authority. And that means that there is involved in this gospel then an acknowledgement and a realization on the part of the people that there is a prophetic presence within them. Prophecy is kind of described as simply, you know, the authoritative word of God spoken by men. And that the result of it is, is that the authority is always divine authority and never human authority. They use human authority in their argumentations. For instance, as we've seen before, you know, Rabbi Hillel says this, Rabbi Gamaliel says this, and so forth. But when you speak authoritatively on your own in the Old Testament, it is an exercise of the gift of prophecy. And so all authority comes from God. And if Jesus speaks with authority, then he is speaking the word of God. He is teaching them what God wants them to know. And so this is why they are amazed, because he's not just another rabbi arguing the minutia of the law. This one is speaking with authority. Therefore, he's speaking as a prophet, and he's speaking, therefore, with the authority of the divine. So that we have now going into into this in the synagogue a realization among the people now that there is a prophetic voice among them. And prophecy was, you know, we we tend sometimes to, uh, to trivialize what the word prophecy means, and we take it either as soothsaying, or we take it as you know, a thundering uh, critique of the world in which we live, and all of this kind of thing. It can deal with the future, and it, it can deal with the social issues of our age. It can do all of that, but the point is, is that the critique that comes forth, or the lesson that comes forth, or the direction that comes forth, is not the construct human construction, it is God's voice, it is God's wisdom, it is God's truth that comes through the prophetic and that makes it you know we can say oh this man's a prophet he's very prophetic in this and that and the other thing or he was very prophetic about you know telling us that this is what was going to happen that that has nothing to do with the old testament understanding of the word prophet which is in fact the authoritative voice of the lord the authoritative word of god so they are already now disposed to realize that they're in the presence of someone who is unlike the others. The last one that they really could say was prophetic was John the Baptist, and that's why they flocked to him. It wasn't John's wisdom that he proclaimed, it was the divine wisdom that he proclaimed. And so in their synagogue just then, once they have recognized Jesus as a prophetic presence in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by an unclean spirit And it shouted out, what do you want from us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so we deal now with something. There's been long periods of time when, of course, when exorcism was thought to be kind of just black magic of some kind or delusional of some kind. But we certainly know that in the modern world we realize that there is an encounter in some way, shape, or form with an evil that exists outside of ourselves. We've talked before about the fact that most of the evil constructs of our world are what flow from the darkness of the human heart. But they have aided and abetted by the spirits of darkness. And uh, we certainly know that there are such things, the scriptures make it very clear to us there are such things as demons. And we know that those demons are able to impact human behavior and human life. We can in some way say, well, the man was possessed by a demon. And we can say, well, those are all the signs of epilepsy. Or we can say, you know, the man was possessed by a demon. And maybe the man is simply insane. But here there is something very concrete Because the consequence of him being possessed by an unclean spirit is he has a withered hand. There's a physical manifestation of some kind of presence within him that has distorted who he is as a person. And the demons do something in Mark's gospel that, that leads us into a whole thematic of Mark's gospel. And that is what is called the messianic secret. We're bewildered sometimes and here we have it too because Jesus then says sharply to the demon, be quiet and come out of him. Why does Jesus silence the demon when the demon happens to be telling the truth? Well, we have to know too that when evil speaks truth, it's not to enlighten the mind, it's to find a way through truth to deceive the mind. And what I mean is this, that Jesus as Messiah does not fulfill the expectations of Israel. He does not fulfill in any way expectation of the great Davidic messiah, the great king, the great teacher, the, all, any of those, the, the, the great general, the one who is going to reconquer Alexander's kingdom and, and, you know, and it will be Israel and all of this kind of thing. All of these were part of the popular expectations. And even in Qumran, even among the Essenes, we find that there was, uh, there was most certainly um, a, an expectation of some kind of grandeur of the Messiah in some kind of political way. Um, they spoke of the teacher of righteousness, they spoke of the great prophet, and if Jesus is to fulfill any of that, it would certainly be as the great prophet it isn't something that is consistent with who jesus is and who what jesus's life story is to become it doesn't include the passion the crucifixion it doesn't include failure from the human point of view from the human sense so that if in fact the demon identifies jesus now as the wonder worker then he creates an expectation on the part of the people as to who this Messiah is going to be and when he creates that expectation, when Jesus fails to live up to or to be the person that the popular mind wanted him to be, there will be a tremendous cause for disbelief, a tremendous cause for rejection. And this is exactly what the demons try to set up in these encounters with Jesus. They kind of want to play to the popular expectation in order to make sure those expectations are disappointed. And when they are disappointed, then faith in the Messiah, belief in the Messiah, following of the Messiah becomes more difficult. And the devil has therefore, the powers of darkness have therefore won a a victory over over Jesus and over the work of the Lord in the midst of the world. Now, the unclean spirit then threw the man into convulsions, and with a loud cry, he came, went out of him. And the people were so astonished that they were asking each other, "What is? does this all mean? Here is a teaching that is new. And they said, and with authority behind it. He gives orders even to unclean spirits, and they obey him. So now they have confronted, what is this prophetic power that is among us? What is that? The idea being, with this authority, he even has authority over the powers of evil. Once more, a deep insight into the messianic reality of Jesus, But a deep insight into that messianic reality that in some way, shape or form allows the people to see that the presence, the truth of God and the voice of God has tremendous power in the world and that it is something worth following and worth believing, even in the midst of a great deal of contradictory signs, a great deal of contradictory dialogue, a great deal of conversation that does not resonate with the authority with which a prophet speaks. Now they are bewildered, and as they are bewildered, his reputation rapidly spread everywhere through all the surrounding galilean countryside so now the very thing that jesus in some way kind of was intent on not happening happens not because of the testimony of the devil not at all but because of the testimony of the son of man himself, of God himself, to the power that resides in his residual in the person of Jesus in the messianic mission and in the power of the prophetic Word of God. What does this all then have to do with ourselves? We see this now. We see what what the authority points to the prophetic role that Jesus plays. We see the power of that of that authority from God. It has power over the evil spirits. It has power to silence them. It has power to drive them out. And so, basically, this is not just another wonder worker. We know, for instance, it was interesting in uh, in in the book of Genesis when Moses is negotiating with Pharaoh for the release of Israel, Um, basically he performs a sign and then the magicians do the same. And then he performs another one and the magicians do the same. People are used to there being magic in the world in which they live. And we, we certainly know the the massive power of group deception and the massive power of misunderstanding of reality. We we see that with magicians, we see that, you know, with the whole Houdini syndrome and so forth. But this this is different, and that's why they emphasize the part of the presence of the evil spirits, because a magician is not adequate competition for the evil spirits, but the authority of God with a word is able to command them, and they obey. And I think that we see then the role that exorcism plays in the New Testament, in so far as it is not a manifestation of wonder working and it is not a manifestation simply, you know, of, uh, oh, well, Jesus felt, felt sorry, and so he became a faith healer. He had, you know, compassion on somebody, so he, he it's interesting, in, in one of the passages in scripture is that he healed someone because of compassion. And that's not really what the scripture says. It's a mistranslation on purpose, because what it really says is he was angry. And someone was thinking, well, why would he be angry at some poor person, you know, with a disability? And, uh, and so they changed to compassion. And we've kind of kept that word, which is, uh, in a way, unfortunate, because his anger is not with the person afflicted. His anger is with the source of the affliction. His anger is, it, is with evil. And, uh, and it is because he finds eager or evils, something that is wicked and dark and harmful to people, that he, in his anger, drives it out. And so here, we don't know what his personal attitude is. This is not one of the passages where it where it says that he does it with pity or compassion, When and many of those where the real translation is he does it in anger. But the fact of the matter is he is not in a negotiating mood with the powers of evil, nor does he relish and take delight in their testimony as to who he is. That's not something that Jesus does in the Gospels. What does this mean now for us? We've said so often before, the Gospels are not limited to having relevance or meaning only in the first century. They are what they are, and they speak to every age, to every time, to every place. And so this Gospel must also speak to us. And when this gospel speaks to us, then what is our reaction? We have already seen, for instance, when he speaks to the crowds in the synagogue of Capernaum, that he speaks with authority. So it is for us then, part of the whole structure of the Catholic Church is that there is an authoritative structure to it. It is not a free charismatic uh, community of individual believers who each receive the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and each then proclaim their own truth. The truth has to be filtered through some kind of authoritative structure. We might say through some kind of prophetic structure. And that means that the authority of the church is supposed to support and substantiate the Word of God, the will of God, and the mind of God. Now, through the ages, we have been able to rely on the authority of the Church. As a matter of fact, you know, even in the great theological debates of the Middle Ages, there was a question is, is reason or authority the most powerful foundation for Catholic theology? And that's still in some ways debated today. That doesn't mean that everyone in authority, when they speak, that they speak with the voice of God. That doesn't mean that at all. The prophetic voice of the church is the communal voice of the church as it has accumulated through the ages. We're not like, you know, the Mormon church where the president of the Mormon church receives new revelations and then things change. That's not who we are. We believe very firmly that the last revelation was revealed with, came with the last of the apostles. And that the role of the church, therefore, is the authentic interpretation of that revelation to every time and place. Meaning, once again, that neither are the decisions of the church locked into time and place but they are pertinent in every age and every place when they are authoritatively proclaimed. And I think that this is something that we we need to deal with in our own lives. I recall um, many years ago when, when I was in the seminary, our rector telling us that to, to remember that the pope is infallible when he proclaims, not when he argues. And I think that we take the infallible proclamations of the church and say, these are the prophetic word of the church. These are where the church stands as prophet in the world, in the modern world, in the modern age. And that whenever we proclaim those truths, we participate in the prophetic mission. Prophecy is not, oh, I have a new idea. Prophecy is not, I have a new inspiration. Prophecy is not, well, the Lord spoke to me personally and he said this, I know the church says this, but I know different. That's, that's not Catholicism. That's not biblical Christianity, very honestly. We can see right here in this gospel, authority is a foundational principle of revelation. And that uh, that authority is rooted in the church offices because of their relationship with the divine, because they are instituted by Christ, not because we decided we had a great way to construct uh, an ecclesiastical society. It was moved and it was instituted and structured by the Lord. It begins with Matthew 16, 18, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. As Catholicism, um, when it came to this country, came mainly kind of in ethnic garb and uh, brought with it the long-established authoritative patterns of Catholicism from the various primarily European cultures at the time as the cultural component of christian of catholicism dissipated in the in the integration of catholics into american society we partook then of the american ethos which was a christian ethos which was very protestant and therefore very individualized and that kind of individualism we began to misinterpret in many ways as authoritative. We find that the two-edged sword, for instance, of the early charismatic movement, which was something that that I think really carried the believing church through the chaos of the post-conciliar chaos of the late 60s and 70s, at the same time ran the risk of becoming an independent entity within the authoritative structure of the church. And fortunately, in, in, as the years went on, it seems to have reintegrated itself now once again into the structure of the church, at the same time always skirting along and something we have to be somewhat careful of along the lines of the private interpretation of scripture, the private inspiration of the spirit, and so forth. All of those things, you know, we the private interpretation of spirit of the scriptures, we read the spirits the scriptures and we seek for some kind of uh, guidance, some kind of light, some kind of illumination of our faith. But it must always be over, it must always be ratified over and against the teaching of the church for it to be authentic. And so every, for instance, Bible study should have some kind of corrective component to it, some kind of component that uh, in, in some way, shape, or form makes it check itself by the official teaching of the Church, the authority of teaching of the Church, and therefore the prophetic voice of the Church. It's also important for us not to attribute divine origin to all things that are spoken to us by authorities within the church because they are not necessarily guaranteed a prophetic voice unless they speak in conjunction with the tradition of the church, unless they speak in conjunction with the belief of the church, which is the reinterpretation in every age of revelation and therefore of the scriptures itself. I think that's important when we come along to something like this, because we have the tendency then to misunderstand authority. We misunderstand authority as something, you know, bestowed in something um, by the society in which we live. And in the 14th century. Marcilio of Padua said exactly that, that the Pope, the church derives its authority from the people. And that's not so. Um nowhere in, in in the gospels does Jesus say, you know, tell me what you want me to say, and then that's what I'll say. That's exactly the problem he has with the demons and exactly the problem that he has with the people who reject him because he does not fulfill their expectations that was a, a great legal debate of the early 14th century in the mansilio of padua's defense of that both civil and he said both civil and ecclesial and ecclesial authority is derived from the direct inspiration of the people when in fact the structure of scripture does not seem to say that Jesus says to Peter, whatever you bind on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be bound in heaven. I give to you the keys. In other words, I give you the right, but I do not give that, bestow that, you know, to everyone who says, I believe. Okay. They are bound, therefore, to follow your authority also. But the authority of Peter is not an absolute monarchist. It's not a divine right of, uh, of Bishop Rick. It is, in fact, a gift given by God through the channels which he establishes for the well-being of the people of God that they might believe correctly and follow authentically the teachings of Jesus Christ. When we frame it that way, we avoid a great deal of issue, a great deal of problem. And although, you know, it's admirable that people receive inspirations, it's admirable that people find, you know, personal meaning and so forth in theology and in scripture, and hopefully everyone does find personal meaning in that, personal meaning is not therefore normative for the church, nor is it normative for our lives. It's what opens us up to the wonder of what comes to us from the Lord through the church. And people with the best of intentions, oftentimes find themselves deeply, deeply imbued with the Protestant spirit, with the spirit of individual inspiration. And this was one of the great issues of the Reformation. You know, do we have the right of private interpretation of the Scripture? And the answer of the Catholic Church was no. You know, the Church interprets Scripture for us. It is not that us that interpret it for the Church. So this is what's happening here in the gospel when Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum. He speaks with authority. He tells them what God wants them to hear. And in so doing, he manifests his right to do that by exercising his power, manifesting his power over the forces of evil and over the forces of destruction. In our day and age, let us honor the prophetic voice of the church and let us honor the great power of the church is capable of having over evil in the world. And let us pray that the human hearts which are involved in the process and the structures of Catholicism may be deeply converted to the love of Jesus Christ, the truth of God the Father, the truth that the Lord brings to us, and the truth which is an essential component of our faith, our belief. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM 820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.